Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I met Jen's freshly squeezed baby and can confirm that Lyra is adorable. Ah, squishy face. Really long feet. Yeah, Lyra long feet. I'm absolutely convinced she's going to rule what's left of this country (laughs) under the name Lyra Longfeet pretty soon. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'd really like to look at something I haven't seen before. Are you asking me to flash my tips at you? (laughs) Well, no, but that would fall into that category, to be clear. (laughs) I I went to see some friends of mine the other day and sit in their garden and I was driving along and I just thought, I'm just bored. Just bored of seeing the same shit. I'd just like to see things that weren't my house, the estate I live on, the road to my friend's house. You know, it's just... I'd quite like to go go to a place I've never been before. I don't know when that's ever going to happen again now. I feel the same. I think I was fine for ages, and now not so much. Later on, writer and performer Annika Harry and I talk Gender Rebels, her book about the diverse, defiant and daring women who change the rules and their identities to get shit done. Sue Elliott Nichols has, like all of us, been Zooming and she has some thoughts about her mini-me in the corner. Time Travelling Jen is back again with part two of her interview with multi-medalist and all-round top woman Asha Phillip. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch How It Ends. The answer, my friends, is badly. And that's not even a spoiler alert. But first, another Hancock up, no lessons learned and an excellent use of TikTok. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Nothing smells like orgasms here. Just why, Gwyneth? Why? Do you like it before or after sex? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, before, I would say. Okay. Because if orgasms do indeed smell, you would hope that you don't need one afterwards. Anyway, I've thrown my vagina candle straight into the bin and I've ordered one of those. So, yeah, (laughs) here we are again. It's Monday, so by the time you hear this, you might well be planning your first trip to the pub or moving a metre closer to everyone else. What times, eh? I'm excited to find out what the security man who stands in the doorway of my local co-op is going to do to make sure he's uncomfortably close to me now. (laughs) Maybe just sit on your knee. (laughs) Or maybe you'll be getting in a queue for a vaccine or doing one of the many other hypothetical things we seem to spend so much time talking about, like we're prisoners planning our first day on release or cult members planning the day the aliens come. Come on, aliens. Come on, you bastards. Health Secretary, no, but really, Matt Hancock chatted about who would get a vaccine first, if indeed a vaccine ever arrives, before going on the telly to apologise for breaking social distancing rules live on air during Parliament last week. Explaining why he, and prepare yourself for the correct use of the word literal here, <laughs> literally patted a colleague on the back, Hancock told the show he really liked his colleague and was so pleased to see him, he couldn't stop himself from making physical contact. Which sounds like the defence of a rapist. But you can have some sympathy, surely. Imagine, Mickey, just imagine not being able to see or touch somebody you really liked for months. I am going to squeeze you so tight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God more of us weren't in that situation at all since March. Not content with making fools of ourselves on the international stage, two Brits who'd gone to New Zealand to visit a dying relative tested positive for coronavirus, becoming the first two cases the country has seen in weeks. Fuck! (laughs) Why do people hate us, Hannah? Why? (laughs) Why do they hate us? Completing the paperwork for that Irish passport just moved right to the top of my to-do list. Why do people hate us? It's a mystery. As Hannah noted, we are, as ever, recording on a Monday, and this Monday is National Windrush Day. Commemorating the day 72 years ago when the ship the Empire Windrush arrived at Tilbury Docks, Essex, carrying migrants to help fill jobs in the UK. National Windrush Day is a chance to thank and celebrate the huge contribution the Windrush generation and their families have made to the UK. Or at least that's what it should be about. And yet focus has to fall on the continued and appalling failure of a generation that gave so much. There are up to 57,000 victims of the Windrush scandal. That's 57,000 people who were told incorrectly that they were in the UK illegally. 
meaning their lives were uprooted and irreparably damaged, with some of them forcibly repatriated to countries they left when they were just children. More than two years since Theresa May first apologised, only 1,275 people have applied for the promised compensation. Just 60 have received any. The Wendy Williams Lessons Learned Review, a report into the Windrush scandal which came out earlier this year, is a damning indictment of the cruelty and incompetence that led to such injustice. And it sets out a wide range of recommendations, a large number of which are urgent, to make things better. So, how is the government doing on that lesson learning, do we think? (laughs) Yeah, not great. It looks like the dog ate its homework. In fact, Williams told BBC Radio 4's The Westminster Hour that the Home Office still needs to make good on its commitment to learn the lessons, or there's a grave risk of similar failures happening again. Given the shit show over the report into COVID-19 disproportionately affecting people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds and a blanket denial from leading MPs that Britain has any problem with institutional racism, despite continued evidence to the contrary, it's hard to feel confident that the hostile environment is a thing of the past. Or to paraphrase Home Secretary Priti Patel, I'm sorry if you feel we're racist. (laughs) The Lessons Learned Review includes the need for the Home Office to set a clear purpose, mission and value statement rooted in fairness, humanity, openness, diversity and inclusion, which seems like the very least a country can do. And yet here we are, still failing. Over to America, if not just to remind ourselves that things can get worse. (laughs) Fucking hell, Hannah. (laughs) And Trump is having a bad week. A judge rejected his bid to ban publication of a tell-all book by his former national security advisor, John Bolton. The book is called, depressingly, The Room Where It Happens, which suggests someone who has heard of, but not watched, or certainly not understood Hamilton. It apparently contains such gems as Trump asking China to help him win a second election, Trump thinking invading Venezuela would be cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if a six-year-old said that to me, I'd go, yeah, maybe, mate. Trump thinking Finland was part of Russia, Trump considering changing the rules so he could run for a third term, and Trump not realising the UK was a nuclear power. Although, in his defence, I can't believe Boris Johnson gets trusted with nuclear weapons either. Trump's much-vaunted Tulsa rally also turned out to be less than successful, with a crowd of 6,000 attending a stadium which holds 19,000. The president's team denied claims that the event was thwarted by anti-Trump TikTok users reserving seats en masse and then not turning up. A Trump 2020 spokesman said millions of requests had been made and all fake requests were weeded out, none of which answers the question of why there were only 6,000 people there, aside from the obvious. Was pretty Patel doing their numbers? (laughs) But hang on, is putting that many people, most of whom weren't wearing masks, in a single place during a pandemic a good idea? Well, to put your mind at rest, everybody attending the rally had to sign a waiver protecting the Trump campaign from responsibility for any illness. And just hours before the event, six staff members involved in organising the rally tested positive. Wow. Maybe I don't want to know how the sausage gets made after all. The (laughs) Hamilton joke. Click boom. Uh, Some good news would be good news about now, right? Yeah. I just wanted to tip my hat to Marcus Rashford, the Manchester United footballer who taught the Prime Minister a lesson in basic human decency. I say lesson, although I doubt we'll see much proof of it being learned as Johnson moves forward. But still, victory was Rashford's, as his campaigning for the voucher scheme that has provided children from poorer families with free meals during lockdown to continue over the summer made Johnson do a spectacular U-turn on his firm decision that it most certainly would not. So now it is. And the children kept from starving by the scheme won't have to starve over the summer. I mean, it feels like pretty basic stuff the government should be addressing without a young man having to use his spot in the limelight to point it out, doesn't it? But as someone who sometimes only had porridge made with water outside of her free school dinners, I would like to hug Marcus Rashford very tightly indeed. Good man. Good man. And there's more. The National Trust, perhaps not the easiest ship to turn has announced it will be accelerating plans to incorporate links between National Trust properties and the slave trade into presentations. John Orner Orstein, the Trust's Director of Culture and Engagement, was quoted in The Guardian as saying, It's not that we haven't explored this topic. What I would say is, this moment, the Black Lives Matter movement 
has made us realise that we need to go much faster. It is the whole world realising that we have to move more quickly and we have to move with a bit more determination. Yeah, better late than never. Well, actually, to be fair, what seems to have happened is that after the celebrations in 2007, which was 200 years since uh, slavery was banned in the UK, the National Trust did start a project. Now, albeit that's 12 fucking years ago. So what he's saying is, this isn't a knee-jerk reaction to this. This is something that was in the pipeline, but we've taken it out of the pipeline and we're just going to fucking do it rather than say we're going to do it. I think it's a shame that he has to couch it in terms where he's saying to his National Trust audience, oh, this isn't us like doing it because we're being told to do it. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. We'll wait and see. Indeed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at the comedy industry and say, about time, motherfuckers. I mean, I am saying that with perhaps misplaced hope that maybe, just maybe, the tide is about to turn on the decades-long history of sexual predation, harassment and assault in comedy. Now, Hannah and I have both worked in the industry and so have experience of this firsthand. And the term open secret could have been coined for the shit that women comedians face. So why now? Well, first up, US comedian Chris Delia has been accused of sexually harassing and grooming young girls. Multiple women have come forward. Delia denies the allegation, stating, I know I have said and done things that might have offended people during my career, but I have never knowingly pursued any underage women at any point. Delia went on to apologise for being a dumb guy who absolutely got caught up in his lifestyle. Ah, the old my lifestyle made me do it excuse. No, it's not an excuse. It's a big no from us. Secondly, Twitter user at Chemical Mishap decided to shine a light on this endemic issue and reposted a noxious Joe Rogan show appearance from Joey Coco Diaz, who you'll find as at Mad Flavor on Twitter. Although, yeah, just do not go there. The 2011 clip shows Diaz bragging about how he used sex as a gatekeeping technique for women trying to break into the club circuit, only giving them a spot if they gave him a blowjob. What's disturbing about that isn't just that Diaz did this regularly, but that he feels clearly very comfortable and safe to not just talk about it, but to brag about it. But then why wouldn't he when his male audience, in this case Joe Rogan, with his $100 million podcast deal from Spotify, find it so thigh-slappingly hilarious? And indeed, when Diaz started trending on Twitter, he doubled down, and there they were, a fresh audience of men finding it thigh-slappingly hilarious. And yet, as ever, the same old, same old question comes up immediately. Well, why aren't more women speaking out? And why aren't they speaking out sooner? I don't know, lads. Maybe once you stop laughing about women's humiliation, harassment and assault at the hands of men with power, we can have a talk. But in summary, one, society's still not really into believing women, although victim blaming is apparently a really fun game to always play. Two, the power dynamic means that it will very much affect a woman's career. Three, she'll be judged. What was she wearing? Has she got tattoos? Has she had sex? Is she a nun? But wait, even if she is a nun, is she a sexy nun? Four, a woman's name will be forever intrinsically linked with, if not defined by, that of the man who at worst assaulted her and at best humiliated her. And five, by speaking out, a woman might also reveal there were other victims. And so the, why aren't they speaking out, cycle begins again. This is by no means an exhaustive list. And so instead, there is a list, one that female stand-ups keep, a spreadsheet of men in the comedy industry never to be alone with. Lol. Over to you, men in the comedy industry 2020. Time to sort out that filthy laundry. Hello listeners, Jen here to tell you about the many, many things you can do to help Standard Issue. We know times are tough and usually we will be asking you to chip us a couple of quid via our Patreon page. Which, if you do want to chip us a couple of quid to help us continue the excellent work we do promoting excellent women, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue. However, there are plenty of other things you can do to help us that will cost you absolutely sweet FA, including giving us a follow on Instagram. We'd like that very much because we're trying to get more followers there. And there's loads of cats and rats and dogs and stuff, so what's not to like, frankly? You can find us there 
at Standard Issue Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Standard Issue UK or indeed on Facebook where we are Standard Issue Magazine. Also, it's super helpful if you just hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, which means A, you'll never miss an excellent episode of Ear Fodder and also we get some of that sweet, sweet advertising dollar. So, guys, you know what to do. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Annika Harry, performer, writer, and now author. Annika, hello. Hello. You know, the more podcasts I do, the more I'm disappointed at the top when you don't get to hear the actual jingle. <laughs> but standard issues for all women. I mean, that would involve me doing an impression of my boss, and I really like my job, so I'm going to probably leave that one. <laughs> of course, my deepest condolences to all there, especially Sarah, regarding my accent impression. <laughs> So your debut book, Gender Rebels, 50 Influential Crossdressers, Impersonators, Name Changers and Game Changers is out now. What is it and why did you decide to write it? It's quite a subtitle, isn't it? It's... I don't think I've learned it myself yet. <laughs> it's um... pretty hefty. Uh, I think it's, it's a great <laughs> it's a little, summary, though. It's a chapter within itself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so Gender Rebels is about 50 women throughout history who've had to pretend to be or present as men to succeed and survive. And that could be in work, in life, in love, just in everyday, general day-to-day. And it spans the centuries, starting right back in the ancient Egyptian times and coming right through to modern day with a handful of modern-day women in the final few chapters. For all sorts of reasons, I wrote it. But the fact that we are still having to discuss that idea in terms of that century span was, um, you know, one of the reasons that really kicked me up the backside to start looking at these stories and, you know, making sure that they were documented properly. How hard was it to find all of these excellent women? There's some names in the book that listeners might be aware of or have an idea of. People like Hua Mulan, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, Joan of Arc. But in terms of the research for the others, probably the biggest chunk of this process was the research because the majority of stories are women throughout history who've been considered other in some way, whether that's gender, their sexuality, race, class, background. They aren't the sorts of stories that we have many of in our history books Mm -hmm. because we all know that the majority of them are written about blokes being brilliant by blokes. So it was a real dig to find some. And I was sort of digging up the archives at the British Library and dusting off books that I'm not sure had ever been open to find some of them. Well, you've come to the number 50. And I'm going to assume that actually you found more than 50 and had to then narrow down your choices. I did. I could write a second book of another 50, but um, I might also just take a little break. (laughs) (laughs) As I say, it was quite the process. It's a privilege to be able to put them out into the world, but also like there's a lot of shocking stories in there. There's a lot of sadness and fear and frustration alongside all of the love and hope. So it it did take it out of me, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not surprised. A story that really moved me was that of Sahar Kodiyari. It's the last story in the book, and it's the last story in the book because it's chronological, but also it's, it's a really fucking sad but powerful note to end on. That's right. So Sahar was born in 1990 and sadly died last year in 2019. And she was originally known as the Blue Girl on social media, blue being the colour of her favourite Persian golf pro team, football team, Estaglal FC. And Sahar was somebody that I really wanted to get in touch with during the research stages of the book. And I never actually managed to. I did speak to a handful of women in Iran who are also football fans, but I never managed to speak to Sahar. I never imagined that I'd end up writing her chapter or finishing on her story or talking about her following her death. In Iran, they have unwritten laws and systemic discrimination, which means that women aren't allowed to attend stadiums to watch male teams play Mm -hmm. and women's professional sport isn't tolerated. Sahar was somebody that was obsessed with football. There's a huge fandom of women in Iran, as I said. And on the 12th of March last year, 2019, 
there was a Champions League match that she decided to attend to. She wanted to go and support her boys in blue and she went dressed in a long blue overcoat and hiding behind a blue wig and she attempted to blend her way into the ground but she was noticed by security trying to do so, promptly arrested and then detained in the Shara Ray prison. She was released, then eventually went to be sentenced at court and the sentence was for six months imprisonment for the crimes of openly committing a sinful act by appearing in public without a hijab and insulting officials. So on the 2nd of September last year, Al-Sahar left the courthouse in an act of distress and premeditated protest. She poured gasoline over her head and body and set um, fire to herself outside of the court and died of those injuries days later. Of course, this was just one of the most horrific stories to write about and such a sad note to end on. Positively, though, it caused a lot of outcry and accelerated activism from many prominent Iranians and celebrities worldwide. And the pressure is really being put on FIFA now and the IFA to make certain that they change the rules and start to consider allowing women into stadiums. Obviously, Sahar's story is tragic and there is a lot of sadness in there as well. Like as if we needed reminding, lesbians have always been given a hard time, which is something (laughs) (laughs) that comes up time and time again. But let's have a few uplifting stories. So I think very timely and fascinating is the story of Ellen Craft. Could you tell us a little bit more about her? Yeah, of course. So Ellen was born in 1826 and lived until 1891. Ellen was born into a world of slavery. So Ellen's dad was a slave master on a rich cotton planter in Clinton, Georgia, and her mother was his house slave, not the major's wife. So um, plantation owners sexually violating and impregnating young slaves was not an uncommon story during the years of slavery in the American South. And Ellen was most likely the product of such a detestable tale and therefore was a constant reminder of her husband's infidelity, the major's wife. And so at 11, Ellen became the wedding gift to a newly married couple and um, she began the unthinkable life as a housemaid. And in the 1840s, she met another enslaved person on an adjacent plantation, the man who was to go on to be her husband, William Craft. I mean, it was love at first sight. It was the most beautiful love story between those two. And they just, of course, wanted to do all that they could to live that life happily together and not in the circumstances. Most slaves that did attempt to escape during these years did so at the dead of night. But Ellen and William did so in broad daylight, Mm -hmm. even catching trains to get on out of there. Um, And the way they did that is as a mixed-race, light-skinned woman, Ellen took advantage of her appearance because it was decided she could go out and be disguised as a white slave master and her husband, William, as her valet. So she cut her hair, learned to stride like an entitled Caucasian persecutor and took the name... Mr. William Johnson, and um, in December 1848, they put their plan into action, and it was a hair-raising journey with many close scrapes, as you can imagine, but they eventually made it to Philadelphia, and they were protected by members of the Anti-Slavery Society. The couple also went on to work with the prominent anti-slavery activist, William Wells Brown, and together, Ellen and William wrote a book about their plight running a thousand miles for freedom and they joined Wells Brown on his lecture tour. Now because women weren't allowed to speak to mixed audiences then, William had to take all of the credit and Ellen had to stand in the wings and it wasn't until the 1990s that the reprints of that book listed Ellen as the co-author finally. (laughs) Fucking hell. (laughs) Annika, pick me one of your favourites. Okay, so I think that we should talk about Florence Pancho Barnes because she's an absolute character and I am just willing for there to be a film about her. So Florence was born in 1901 and she lived until 1975. And she was born in in California into a wealthy family, but she was raised by her father and her grandfather as the boy that they wished she had been. And she was quite unruly, but 
she found a passion in aviation. Her granddad was a bit of a pioneer in that industry and took her to an air show and she got an instant taste of gasoline and power. Um, <laughs> She wanted to run free and adventure. She didn't want the life that was planned out for her. And at 19, she was actually married off to a local clergyman. And the plan was to try and tame her. Obviously not my word, but she just couldn't hack it. In her early 20s, she did a bunk. She realised the only way she was going to be able to do so safely and with any agency was to adopt male clothing. So she created an alter ego called Jacob Crane and did one. And she got up to all sorts of adventures, going off to Mexico, ending up uh, in all sorts of scrapes. And when she eventually had to go home, she tried to um, divorce her husband, which would have been shocking at the time anyway, but especially if it was coming from the woman. And so to make sure that he signed the divorce papers, she strode to his church naked on a white horse and shocked him into signing. <laughs> and from there on in, she was she was free to live her life. And she did that by managing to get a pilot's license by using, again, the male clothing element for the photograph for the license. It wasn't illegal for women to be in airplanes or in the industry, but it was frowned upon highly. Men hated women anywhere near planes, especially if they were on their periods. Stick a fork in me for I am done. Is that because we attract bears when we're on our period and they don't want bears in the air? <laughs> <laughs> Any horror that exists comes from the women's reproductive system. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Florence went on to beat Amelia Earhart's speed record in 1929. She moved to the Hollywood Hills to become a stunt pilot, and she flew in some of the most watched films of the time of the 1930s, including Hells Angels, and she even formed a union for aerial stunt pilots. She liked fast cars, powerful planes, and young men. And she opened a 180-acre ranch in the desert called the Happy Bottoms Riding Club. And it was used as sort of a base for a lot of filming. And it's said that there were so many wealthy and influential pilots that flew into Happy Bottoms. It was like the air practically shimmered with testosterone. I hope nobody's eating. Um, <laughs> uh, sadly... All fun must come to an end, and in the end, the U.S. Air Force eventually got the hump with Florence Pancho Barnes and all of her escapades and took ownership of the land after a bit of a court broil. And so she was left a sort of deserted woman in the desert, um, penniless in the end. But a nice little thing to imagine, whether it's true or not, we don't know, but let's hope so. When she died... Her family and friends actually asked permission from the Air Force to have her ashes spread over the site of the Happy Bottoms Riding Club. And the story goes that as that happened, a crosswind came up and swept her ashes back into the aircraft to fly her off again, which, as I say, I hope is true because I love that. <laughs> she, she got them back into the cockpit in the end. That is a great end to her story. Not the deserted and penniless bit. It happens so often to women in history. <laughs> it's horrific. I've got to say, Gender Rebels is a really easy read. It's a really fun read. Are you hoping that young adults are going to pick it up? Thank you, yeah. I mean, I have a background in comedy, so I try and tackle lots of uh, big issues with humour, and I wanted to write this in an accessible way. And I think it's a book for that age range upwards, really. I've tried to keep it as light as possible, but as you've heard there, there are some big, uh, big deal issues to discuss. I think until we can laugh at the mess we're in, we're never going to get out of it. Oh, I agree. And the audiobook is pretty fucking exciting, eh? It is. I'm, actually, I'm not embarrassed to say I'm listening to my own audiobook at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, myself, the actor, Saran Jones, the presenter, Maya Jammer, and the broadcaster, Gemma Kearney. We read it between us, and it was an excellent day of recording. As you can imagine, that was a very fun studio day. And it's out now as well. Also, the audiobook ends in some interviews between myself and all of the guest speakers too. Actually, Standard Issue comes up. Me and Saran ended up talking about Standard Issue and when we were talking about excellent feminist ventures and stuff that, you know, we loved in that realm. And I said on record there, I have to thank you lot because you're actually one of the first publications to, to really showcase my writing work. So I put it on there and I, it's a great pleasure to say thank you again now. Ah, you're very welcome. And Saran and Gemma have both been guests. We are trying to get Maya as well. Where can people find you, please, Annika? 
um, just in my lounge, staring at the same four walls at <laughs> the minute, but um, <laughs> growing a moustache. I mean, it might be quite relevant for the book, I guess. <laughs> a full-on handlebar moustache. I'm online at Annika Harry everywhere, which is A-N-N-E-K-A, Annika Harry. Annika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a treat. Zoom in, Skype in, Google Hangouts, whatever, they're all the same sort of deal, aren't they? Anyway, they are very much a part of our lives now. Thanks, lockdown. And so we got the brilliant broadcaster, Sue Elliott Nichols, to share her very personal take on what it's like chatting to people and at the same time being incredibly distracted by the mini-me in the corner. Not me, her. You know what I mean. Is it me? Or are we all just a little bit horrified when we see ourselves on Zoom? I had a chat about Zoom and the ageing process with an old friend. You know the ones. The ones you were once cute with. So, Vibeka, how are you finding seeing yourself? Seeing myself on Zoom? I hate it. I have a kind of rictus smile all the time. And then I spend all my time not listening to what anyone is saying, but just looking at these flabby bits. The jowls, though. Me too. I find myself sort of pulling them back sometimes. That's exactly what I do. Or then I put my hand in front of my face, but then I notice how pudgy my hands are, and then I spend a few minutes thinking about that. Meanwhile, God knows what they've been saying. Wear nail varnish and lots of jewellery because it's quite distracting. (laughs) Yeah, because you don't know what other people are looking at. Maybe they're looking at themselves. They're 100% looking at themselves. Yeah, exactly. We're all looking at ourselves. I know. Everybody. I never look at anyone else apart from a brief fleeting glance to see whether they look good and if they do I'll look at them to try and work out how they've done it. <laughs> lipstick. Lipstick is key. And I had no idea I looked so old. <laughs> I look so old. I am always around young colleagues so I feel as young as them. You know you feel as young as the people around you. <laughs> look at myself this old crone in the middle of this lovely gallery of young people don't say crone Honestly. oh no I'm gonna have that in my head now and and I've got these wrinkles above my lip which I think are making me develop a slightly Hugh Edwards sneer <laughs> that's from smoking all those years ago those bloody wrinkles no it's not I had I it's not smoking <laughs> it's not a cat bum mouth I kind of find myself pulling my face back. Exactly. And, and I notice how nice my lips look. And then I think that's what a facelift does, isn't it? I literally have been thinking about plastic surgery. So you have know. I. You remember I'm you and I always used to say we would never do never, that. Never, never would I do that. Why do these people do that? They ruin themselves. Now I'm thinking, bloody hell. Just a bit of Botox, just on the upper lip. Not, not like trout pout, not for the lip but for the skin bit above the lip, between the lip and the nose. I don't even have a mirror. That I There's only one mirror in my house, and it's in my daughter's bedroom. So I've always been quite happy not to look in a mirror all day. But now I have to look at myself all day long, and it's hideous. So has it improved? Have you kind of taken yourself in hand? I have. No. <laughs> I wish I could say <laughs> no. You see, I have found, uh, well, actually, I don't wear it so much now because I've got a little bit of sun on my face. But at the beginning, I found at the bottom of my makeup bag this dusty old freebie foundation. I started wearing foundation. Wow, that's a first. I've never worn it, but I must say it really helped. Yeah, no, I think, but the thing is that I would need someone to teach me how to put on makeup because I'm rubbish at it. You've got an 18-year-old daughter who is an expert at makeup. Mind you, she might give you some of those, like, (laughs) she might sculpt your face. She has. She's given me the darkest eyebrows. I look like a clown. I mean, you can carry it off when you're 18, but not when you're 53. And she got, does she do the white bit on her nose? Yes, of course she does the white bit on her nose. I really want to, I, I want, I'm like an old lady that wants to stop girls on the street and say, don't do that white bit on your nose. But I'm used to it now. I kind of like it. It's like, like socks and sliders. But apparently you can switch yourself off. Now, isn't that rude? Um, I don't know. I think it's probably quite liberating. Other people can still see you, but you can't see yourself. Oh. Yeah. So apparently that's an option. Oh, God, no, no. I but, mean, then I could think, what what are they looking at? Na- you know? <laughs> yeah. No. And also, this is the other thing. Being a blank, being a blank on the screen, that's rude, isn't it? Because I've noticed some, some people do that. We like have- a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to show that you haven't got out of bed for 
two months and that your bedroom is basically your life. So I like to think of it as my dressing room. <laughs> so you haven't decided to take the whole thing in hand. You see, I think that I'm a sort of shallow vein and superficial person and I now put on complete makeup before any Zoom calls. In fact, every single morning. Mm. It's mental health, isn't it? It's bad enough being locked down with your family for 10 weeks and losing 80% of your work. And gaining 80% of your weight. You don't want to also feel like you look like you're a, a video nasty. <laughs> we really don't. So I've picked up a few tips as discussed makeup. I know, I know we are a feminist podcast, but these are desperate times. Secondly, on the advice of the lovely TV wardrobe lady, Helen Wolfenden, a little tip. If you wear something with even a splash of your eye colour, it brings out the colour of your eyes. Oh, who knew? Helen is also staying in Australia for lockdown and tries to do most of her calls when the sun is setting. Which gets me on to lighting. In front of a window, as if you're looking out of the window so that the light is shining on your lovely, made-up face. If it's dark, do it in the dark. Or two soft lamps, three if you can manage it, in the same kind of shape as a bay window, so that the light shineth upon your lovely fizzog. Soft light, though. Then, of course, we're all versed on the selfie. Have your screen camera in line with your eyes, unlap your laptop and stick it on top of a large book. I gave all this information to Vibika. She chose to ignore it. Except this one time. But the other day I had a job interview on Zoom, right? And We spoke about this, you and I. Yeah, because, and, and so my husband, Curtis, was saying, you can put all the notes on your wall and then you can just look at them behind the screen. Perfect. But when I did that, the lighting was awful. I basically looked terrible. So did I go for the notes so I would give a good interview or did I place the desk in the middle of the room so that I had the best lighting possible. Best lighting possible. <laughs> exactly. It was all about the lighting. Because if you'd known that you looked really bad, you would have done a bad interview. Well, or maybe that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> so when you had your interview, because <clears throat> we spoke about this, Vibika, and, I, and I, I'm surprised that you're not continuing with my expert advice I know, I know. tell everybody what happened when you had your interview I got the job you see <laughs> so there you have it awaken your inner mean girl and get to work because you wouldn't go to work in your pajamas would you or perhaps you would would I nah but I might go in my nighty or a negligee with a pair of pink fluffy mules and a fag hanging out of my mouth You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Hello, Jen here. This is the second part of an interview I recorded with GB sprinter Asha Phillip back in May. So you've already heard the first part, which was about life during lockdown for an athlete. And in this second part, because we ended up chatting about quite a lot of stuff, I thought... Let's not waste it. We talk about why Great Britain needs to get behind more sports than just Premier League football. Hope you enjoy. We're missing a lot of sport this year, obviously. You know, we may miss an entire season of basically everything because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. We don't know when things are going to be able to resume in the way that, you know, they had been before the, the olympics is an amazing platform for women's sport really puts women's sport out there for people to see in a way that i just don't think exists in in any other kind of event if we miss the olympics this year obviously we're going to have it next year all being well so that's great and we'll all look forward to that and we'll look forward to all of the events that you know have been, we've missed this year or have been postponed or whatever do you think women's sport can pick up where it left off? Do you think there's going to be issues around sponsorship and things like that? You know, do you think like missing a season will damage women's sport? I wouldn't say it would damage it. I just still feel like there's just a massive difference to this day between men and women. So it doesn't really matter if it, this happened or not. There's still a big gap. 
the Olympics does help boost because it puts other women's sport and female names out in the light, but it doesn't always catch as much as it should, even if it is or not. But from when they put football back on TV, women are kind of like pushed back anyway. Mm. So I wouldn't say it's going to make a massive difference. I feel like it will just pick off where it left and sponsorship on another thing i think a lot of businesses are going to take massive cuts so i don't know what they're going to do with that anyway so for a lot athletes are going to struggle anyway mm. and it's always like the smaller sports because olympics doesn't have the biggest major sports in it okay they have tennis and they do have football obviously there's a lot of restrictions on that and who can play it's a totally so different are, game yeah to yeah there are other sports that i think the olympics does help because sport isn't that big in the uk I've been to America and I can see the crowds that turn up mm. to watch gymnastics and the athletics meets, whereas our trials are never packed out. They were packed out for Olympics, but they're not really packed out for any other season. Yes, we have a Diamond League in London, but obviously who wants, everyone wants to go to Olympic Stadium and see the best run. And it's just a shame because sport in the UK kind of needs a big boost. And I'm kind of grateful that we do have a national sport, which is football, and people do come to watch it. But I also hope that they did the same for women when it came to football. Like, you might as well just have a um, playing field for both, especially rugby as well. Like, we're such a supportive team for the men. Like, why not do the women? Mm. I, I feel sometimes athletics does get a blight because we compete on the same day. Yes. If it was separate, I feel like we would struggle. But I think it's interesting because when I think about athletics in the uk at the moment in great britain i think the better known athletes are all women it's true but then when you've got usain bolt and mo farah sure everyone's gonna want to go and watch them and sure. don't get me wrong Chris Lurigu, um, Je- jessica ennis hill like we've got some big names but i'm just they're gonna pick them unfortunately as much as i as a female want to watch women on tv and feel like okay i want to be like you one day they need to push that more because there are little girls out there that want to be like it was funny because they, they want to be like me when they grow up but um they do. it's true <laughs> yeah but I listen, like, I'm crazy I don't think you want to know like my family <laughs> are definitely <laughs> should get checked out for something <laughs> but I just say we're like a madhouse we just like to have a lot of fun in our um in my family but when I watch TV I used to always thought one day I'm going to be Serena Williams or but then my mom didn't give me a tennis racket so that didn't work but I still feel <laughs> if I was able to see women on TV, I would want to be one of them. So, like, my nephew watches football. He watches me run. So, because he sees me, he wants to be faster than me. He wants to be faster than Flash or <laughs> Usain Bolt himself. So, it's like when children see, like, sporting stars or something that they want to be, that's what they aim for. Mm. And if it's not shown on TV as if young women, I feel like that makes, it, it puts a big toll on the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it's so... What we see in the media is so saturated by football, by men's top league football as well. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's that age old, if you can't see it, you can't be it. I generally think so. And it's, it's sad because we know we compete for our country. Like, we work really hard. And I wouldn't say we work any harder than any other sport because each sport is different. And I know how hard it is to make it to the top. But it's just, like, we just don't get the same love. And I wish, like, if you if you go to America and you see the love that all the sports get, it's amazing. From universe, from second world, from, was it college? Um, to yeah. From high school, like, literally, it is through the roof. And I, was, I always wish myself, I wish I went to a school like this. Because everyone's involved. You, you're like champions there if you guys do well. And then, obviously, if you make it to a senior, then, obviously... Yeah, it gets difficult, but that's of any world when you turn professional. If we had the same support, it would be so different here. I think we, we've got the power, we've got the strength, but we just don't have the support. How can we support you better then? What can we do as consumers of sport? It all helps with sponsorship because there are a lot of grassroots that could do with the help. Like I know where I first started up at Newham Athletics um, Track and Field. I've Guy been too. there. Oh, <laughs> been there. It's a lovely. Yeah. My, that's why I met my first coach, Carl Graham, and I met a guy called Tim. And Tim is still there to this day, and so is Carl. And you just, 
you know when you look at them and they're so happy to see you just make it and you'll never forget people like him and they just do it for the love of it yeah people like him and um, my coach at the time need they needed the support so they can help us all grow and then even still like there's professional athletes out there that aren't even sponsored some of them are just still working probably nine to five and then still training in afternoons evenings um early mornings like the whole of their weekend because they don't have time off because they love the sport and they know how good they are but they just don't have the sponsorship and it all is about literally just support if you could support or help someone why not do it i know this is not like a harsh thing to say but i feel like we're all a victim of it ourselves it's like we only help people when it kind of hits home if that mm. makes sense do you mean a bit like a puppy is for life, not just for Christmas? So like a, a sprinter is for life, not just for the Olympics. So people should be yes. getting involved and coming yeah. to see you guys, you know, when you have meets and stuff, like when you have races, buy the tickets, watch it on TV, shout about it on social media. It really is a journey and you get to know the person because we don't just, like I said, we don't do this for fun. We train Every day we're in and out. This is 24-7. Like, I don't, you miss out on so much. Birthday parties, christenings, weddings, because we're just always on the job. And, like, I could be away. I could be doing different types of things. But And the thing is, sport is short-lived. And I want to give it all that I can. I, I know I can't do it for the rest of my life. But I feel like I need the support to make sure I've been able to give it as much as I possibly can. I've done well because I've got an amazing sport team and that is firstly my family. I don't think I would have made it far without them at all. My mum said to me, I remember when I left uni, she said, Asha, I believe in you and I believe you can make it far. So I'm going to support you. I think it was for two years, I think, at the time. Well, to be fair, she'll support me for the rest of my life because she's my mum. But she really meant like, I will I will help you. Anything mm. you need, I'll do it. And if, my, if I said to my aunt, oh, I need this, well, she, to her mind, nothing's an expense. If you need it, I'll get it for you. If I have to break my back or do whatever, I'll do it for you. But I'm lucky because I have a family like that. And I know not all families are able to do it or who want to but can't or just or aren't interested in more sport because not many families feel like sport is still a thing. They want to get an education and, you know, get a real job, as I've been told. Hmm. But, you know, we love this sport. I just really wish that people loved it as much as I did because everyone wants to do track and field. Everyone wants to do different things in sport. So, like, I don't, I don't know how to put it in sport. There's 50 sports in the Olympics, and I just wish that our country just supported every single one of them. I really do. Just because I love sport, no matter what it is, I watch it all in Olympics. And because of the Olympics, I was able to make friends from it. And I now watch them throughout their journeys and support them. And I, I like that. I really do. Because now it just makes me feel like maybe, oh, I should have tried that instead. Or, you know, if I had a child, maybe I'll make them try this sport or something. And, you know, we just have to be given an opportunity. I am a massive Olympics enthusiast. I love the Olympics. I did a thing... A like a while ago now I tried every Olympic sport Um, did you yeah I wrote a blog about it I've kept it up like I'm still sporty now I go to the gym a lot I do like a bit of Thai boxing I do a bit of cycling I do like various bits and bobs now but I went from just not really doing any sport at all to like I'm gonna try and do all these Olympic sports so obviously loads of sport that I would never have thought about that I would never have paid any attention to suddenly I was like you know really invested in I guess and the Olympics are so amazing because as you say they give a platform to all of these like some of these quite niche slightly ridiculous sports (laughs) but they're so entertaining like handball right handball is huge in Europe it's massive it's like the second biggest team sport for women after football Mm. and we just don't do it here really well we do do it here but it doesn't get any attention it doesn't get much funding which i think is a shame because i think if you could show people these sports yeah if they could see them again you have to see it in order to be it because the diet that we have here of sport is so limited what we show people what we showcase that people don't understand what's out there and i think if you showed children handball they'd be like oh that looks amazing you know like it's kind of this weird slightly yeah. violent mixture between basketball <laughs> yeah. and football and all sorts of other things and it's an amazing spectator sport if you actually get a chance to see it but you yeah, just don't yeah. get to see it most of the time honestly if it was if i don't know a 
a channel just said they're going to show every sport, I bet you it would just raise a lot of attention and more channels will probably want to play it. And because like netball is starting to grow now, mm. now they're on TV. Not all of them, they don't show every single match, but they show more than whatever they did. And that makes a massive difference. And now you're getting more people in the crowds. You could just do so much by just showing it. And it gives us something to look Oh, we're going to be on TV. Like our sport is going to do something. And imagine your child's going to say, oh yeah, I want to be on TV. I want to do sport. Instead of like, I don't know, just, when because I like sport, I, my child is not allowed to do anything else but sport. If, if I didn't have a child that did sport, I'd be very confused. And um, I mean, they could do whatever they wanted as long as they did something with me until they're old enough to tell me no. But um, <laughs> they need, I just feel like they could do so much. And even still, when it comes to schools, because when I was growing up, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we have like a bar of sports. We never got to go to our bar of sports, which was quite upsetting, actually. If they, stuff like that makes you get excited that all the boroughs are coming together and now you get to compete and compete um, against your borough rather than just your school. And like, even if, not even like a, a camera crew came down there, but even if it was online or like a YouTube, and that makes more parents could watch it because obviously we all, we have to work at the end of the day. So that would have been nice as well. They just, there's just so many ways now and because the world is moving at such a fast rate when it comes to social media that they could do it. And I just feel like it's just time and energy and even or you could get university students to do it but there's all different ways it's just if they want to and like I said it would be my dream if they could give the same energy to every single sport well anyone listening to this that's the uh, call to arms as it were give give some more energy to other sports please that would be nice and fun yeah. as well because like you know handball it's great give it a watch also basketball why don't we play basketball here <laughs> I don't understand it. It seems really we weird do. to me. We well, we do, do but it's not. It doesn't get any funding, and it's never on TV. Obviously, you see how big the NBA is in exactly. the US, and it's just because I think that's crazy. Because you think yeah. about like how many, especially like inner city kids, they can't go sailing, they can't go horse riding, they don't have loads of space to like do loads of other things that they might do. But there's always a basketball court somewhere, yeah. and all you need is some mates and a ball. Exactly. And, which is obviously, it's a lot more accessible than a lot of other sports. And I always think like, why don't you just... Why don't we promote that? Especially when you look at the NBA, it's huge. The Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix at the moment, that's probably going to be like one of the biggest documentary series this year, like most watched, <laughs> the amount of people that are interested in it, who probably don't even know anything about basketball, but they know who Michael Jordan is. They know this what is the true. NBA is. And yeah. you just think such big business in the US... Mm-hmm. it's obviously a sustainable sport why aren't mm-hmm. we building that here it's so weird to me that we don't try and build that here I need someone that's at the top that says we need this for the whole sports for the uk and they need to push it and do something about it because it to be honest it's quite embarrassing it really is because i feel so sorry for the footballers at times they've got so much pressure on them mm. because they get paid the most they do the most and when they go to a championships and they don't win everyone's like well what is that do you know what I mean? Even though they worked hard and they are still competing with the world's best, but we put them on such a big pedestal to say, like, you pay, you get paid so much, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, blah, 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 blah. You have no choice but to come home with a gold medal. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, that sport is, is, is a tough sport to just go and just collect a gold medal. But that's mm. how everyone thinks. But it's just like, had you supported everybody else as well, maybe you would have come back with more medals. They had a lot of pressure because... When All it our was eggs the... are in one basket, aren't they? Yes, that's yeah. basically it. And don't get me wrong, it's a good basket, but there are several more. And I feel like if we just helped, <laughs> you know, even crack them in half, maybe, you know, someone have the eggs. Five, we can make it work, yes. And I'm sure it'll be fine. Asha, thank you so much. That's a really, really interesting chat. Where can we find you on Twitter and things like that if we want to follow what you're up to? Yes, at Miss M I W S at Asha Philip. Put my name there and add my little cute self that I'd always stay young with two S's. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much and all the best. I hope the season is back and if not, all the best with the preparation for next year's Olympics and we will be cheering you all the way. Thank you so much.
Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what film did we watch that made me want to plan my own sudden demise halfway through? Uh, This week we watched a disaster film without a disaster. A disaster film in which people headed towards a disaster, but we never really found out what had happened Mm. or why. I think the disaster Um, was just ennui. That's what I decided. Yeah. How it ends. Do you know what? I haven't even bothered checking a year or who made it or any of that stuff. 2018, Hannah. It's new and it's Netflix. Or who any of those people were. I had a feel of a Netflix film about it. Mostly because I usually do that stuff at the start and I was massively distracted by the really weird artificial light in it. So much so that I've got a new telly. So I thought maybe it's my telly. But then I watched a little bit of Country File. It was fine. (laughs) About... It's more a road trip, I would say, than a disaster film and a weird road trip about a man and his very, very, very angry father-in-law who are trying to travel across country from... I don't know. See, I don't even know if they mentioned it. Was it Chicago? Chicago to California. Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago to Seattle in an attempt to find his pregnant girlfriend. This film really, really, really wants to be the road it wants to be this horribly dark, nihilistic journey in which everybody they meet is basically jackals. And it's all about just their journey and their mission. But it's not written by Cormac McCarthy and it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. So it's just an essentially a, a series of of people bumping into people and having a horrible time and then bumping into some more people and having it's a horrible like a, time. It's like a traveling dystopian big brother house day five will kill people for gasoline yeah 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 it goes it goes south very quickly well enormously quickly you you uh sent me some messages in advance of this to warn me about quite how macho forest whitaker is what a just a tremendous bellend the sort of bellend that says don't swear in front of my wife but he speaks code he can speak code to other soldiers he has like this little weird way of talking that means that they, they get to do stuff that other people can't do. The soldier whisperer. He is the soldier whisperer. Yeah. What happens is this guy's on the phone to his girlfriend. He's supposed to be heading back to Seattle. And while he's on the phone to her, something happens. And he can hear that something's happened. And then all phone contact cuts out. So he goes to the airport and discovers that his flight's been cancelled. And then he goes to back to his parents-in-law or future parents-in-law's house to find out what's going on. At no point he does the thing that 100% of people would do in that situation which is google what the fuck just happened in Seattle yeah. so he goes to meet the big swinging dick that is Forrest Whitaker <laughs> and they decide that they're just gonna dump his wife with another one of their kids and travel across Bipolar. country to find her that as Mickey says there's some roadblocks but they soldier whisper their way through them but then they immediately run into some punk ass pits <laughs> at the uh, garage and things start to go really downhill from there. They make a very odd decision early, which is to come off the I-90, which is the interstate, which is like a road that goes from Boston to the West Coast. It's massive. And they decide to come off that and go on country roads because it will be safer to be on country roads. And they continue to go with this plan. In fact, they reiterate this plan later on, despite the fact that everything that happens to them in the meanwhile would suggest it's not safer (laughs) at all to be on the country roads. My favourite of which is something that happens early when they go past a maximum security prison where clearly there's been some sort of breakout, although it isn't really explained. And they get stopped by a police car who turns out not to be a Mm. policeman who then chases them. And the oddest thing about that is there's no sense of who this person is or what they want. He just wants to get to them. Mm. He wants... Just a bad guy. I don't... He's already got a car. (laughs) I don't understand. Why does he want a different car? Just he just got out and gone, fuck, I want to kill some yeah. people. Like he's literally been like, ar, 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 at the fence, <laughs> waiting like a zombie to just get out and start killing. I think so, people. yeah. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. So, so that's kind of odd. So yeah, Will and Tom, I wrote their names down at whatever point I noticed what they were. They then managed to pick up a car mechanic who is called Ricky on a reservation and travel with her briefly for a while, in which case it can make some pompous kind of, let's try and use the Native American character to say something about the sense of the earth. Do you know what I mean? But then they just fuck her off out of it. Well, he punches her in the face, doesn't he? He does, yeah. They go, yeah, they go off and visit a friend 
who runs a pottery shop in a town that would never have a fucking pottery shop, I'm telling you. She's not made for this world, or certainly this disaster, pottery shop owner. They go and visit her for a bit, then they fuck off. They're constantly stopping for food and supplies, but they never seem to actually get any food and supplies, so they have to get more food and supplies, which is odd. And they've obviously decided to try and create this idea of, of like, the first thing you're going to say is where they're going to get their petrol from. Like, that's the first logical question. So they've decided to integrate it into every single part of the plot. Whereas, you know, petrol suddenly becomes a currency, as, as Lucy points out, which people are killing each other for petrol. And then Forrest Whitaker, he, he's broken some ribs. He starts set, telling a story about his dad. And I thought, oh, this film's nearly over. And it still had 41 fucking minutes to go. Still had 41 minutes to go. Yeah, it's weird. You said it looked like a car advert, and it kind of does. It's, and they've got that hilarious bit where he's on the bridge with all the rednecks, and he decides he's going to do a spin round, and he's going to go from reverse to first gear. And, like, they, they close up on it, like Americans always do. Like, this is really, 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 like, great example of nifty driving. It's a fucking automatic. You've gone from there to there. It's, like, not an impressive thing to do at all. It's way more impressive to do that in a manual car. I don't understand why Americans think that they're great drivers, but also only drive automatic. Yeah, and also the the car advert really comes into its own at the ending. I, I don't want to. I don't know if I can spoil anything about this film. It's just terrible. But there's nothing to spoil. Nothing to see. <laughs> it's here. Nothing to it's spoil. It's hard to see. It's all very darkly <laughs> lit. But yeah, just the end when they're literally trying to outmaneuver a volcano. I was like, yep, yeah, that's a new BMW 3 Series right there. It just feels like those really ridiculous car adverts you get. But also that, that trick, that stunt on the bridge. The thing about that stunt is you immediately come to a halt and that, that means that those cars would have totally got him. But I'm applying logic that yeah. there is no logic. You are. For this film to work, which is basically just like the last days of someone, it's essentially what this film is. Like I say, it kind of reminds me of The Road in that sense. Is that you have to invest in something. And there was nothing to invest in. There's no character I gave mm-hmm. a fuck about. There was no yeah. explanation. The thing that about The Road is, this is people who have experienced years of this. These people have gone full on feral in like yeah. five days. Yeah. Uh, Ricky is... is- the only character I quite liked, uh, First Nation. But what happened to her? She just went. <laughs> she just. I think she just. She reread she the script and off, halfway she? through She's and had had to write it in. I think that's what happened. She just fucks off. <laughs> I could spend. I could spend the rest of my life in a car with you two, or I could just walk across this hill to my doom. Oh. I know which I'm choosing. Yeah. Nice that they have you know a female mechanic though. I liked that. Yeah. That's the only thing going for it in terms of going oh interesting but then Forrest Whitaker punches her in the face so then she yeah, does offer I do feel quite, quite an interesting commentary on the names of American helicopters she says about them all being named after uh, sort of areas and peoples that they wanted to wipe out but it's such a throwaway comment it doesn't really go anywhere and it feels yeah. like that shouldn't be the bit of a film I remember but it is <laughs> that whole thing about how when bin laden was killed the the go word was geronimo and there's this sort of idea that the the americans simultaneously like romanticize them and treat them like shit at the same time but yes other people have said that for a long time so yeah that seems like a at some some a talking point someone's heard in a pub and written into a (laughs) written into a script and yeah it's it's the most memorable dialogue in the entire film (laughs) So, yeah, I thought it was appalling. Who was in it? I don't know. Forrest Whitaker was in it. I don't know who any of those other people were. It was just very meh. Meh. I normally write things down when I'm watching these films. Yeah, just like oh, I think you said meh. There was nothing. There was nothing to it. Like (laughs) no, well, yeah, that would have made it better. I did try to smoke some while I was watching it just to see if it would uh, enhance it. But no, the only well, there was two parts. The part where they're going past the big water slide place and Forrest Whitaker says, oh, let's go in here. And for a second, I just thought we might get a montage of Forrest Whitaker on like a rubber ring, laughing his little face off in his like a little swimming costume. But no. And I agree. You never see them eating. So and I like that. I like to see the details like in the road. It felt like the road with a little bit of like zombie landing but not funny not good not a dystopia it was all a little bit shit at the end when uh, i'm probably gonna i don't want to do any spoilers but there is nothing to spoil 
when his girlfriend has the guy um, that she's staying with and he turns out to be wanting to keep her and he has to kill him. That just felt like a, a completely different film. It didn't really fit with it. I agree with you when Forrest Whitaker dies, that should be it, but it isn't. So yeah, it's a very, uh, just a, a bit of a nonsensical film and kind of felt you, left you feeling yeah. a bit empty. It's like a sad end. wank, a yeah. sad wank of a film. No one was fulfilled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to yeah, the to list. list. I think I've got six. Thankfully I've got two. So I don't have to choose another film. <laughs> I have four. Shall I start with my two? Then. Can you smell burning? That's, you know, there's a lot of kind of fire and things in there. And then uh, I'm going to try and get the Brexit analogy in. Arguing with your in-laws over dinner and somebody ends up um, slipping in the F-bomb because they're so angry. That's yeah, kind of like it. the Brexit analogy there for this film. Go on, Hannah, if you've got four, yeah. you go next. We'll build up to my, my grand six. Old personal sacrifice. Uh, Forrest Whitaker obviously dies trying to save his daughter and his unborn grandchild who eventually will probably die. <laughs> uh, so many traffic jams, which there were at the start, even though he soldier whispered his way out of them. It was going so well until I sprained my ankle slash repeatedly got out of the car to help people who were obviously a ruse. What is wrong with them? They, why don't they learn? There's another Brexit analogy. Why don't they learn? <laughs> and adopt brace position. There's a lot of car crashes mm. in this. Some of them brought on by themselves as well. Yeah. Okay, you might argue with my first one, but I would I would argue there is a pre-disaster shag because she's very much up the duff. But and It doesn't okay. happen in the film though, does it? I mean... Might it'd be it good up. if All we right, got I to see it that might have been better I mean but yeah you can argue that every that. film someone in it will have fucked before the start <laughs> I, of the Hannah? film can I actually do that <laughs> maybe not Wally, but apart from that oh well these are kind of disaster films let's watch that again um okay even so I've still got five but I have to find my son slash daughter obviously nature you cruel mistress because despite weird man at the ends like thinking it might be aliens. It's clearly a volcano. Mid-disaster punch-up. Fucking loads of fighting. Loads of it. Could title be a porn film title? Absolutely. <laughs> How it ends. Would I watch it? Maybe not, but it could definitely be there. And yeah. where are the fucking women? Well, I'll tell you where they are. They're gone, gone, and pregnant. That's it. Yeah, or yeah. standing at the side of the road, pretending to be... Or manipulative injured. snakes with tits. <laughs> That's the other option. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I choose? <laughs> Thanks, well, you welcome. Yes, you can. <laughs> well, I'm please, actually going to hand it over to regular me. listener Becky Smith. Hi, Becky. Thanks for Instagramming us, who has suggested we watch the film Daylight and therefore try to help her come to terms with her fear of tunnels. Okay, okay. okay. So let's okay, do that. Okay, sounds good. Standard issue for all women.